I was thinking about preaching on revival today. I'm just so daggone anxious to get to get into it. Uh, but uh, I felt like the Lord was uh, telling me this week to finish finish what you started, son. You know, Second Peter. So we're going to look at chapter three today, um, which is interesting because another earmark of Holy Spirit revival is is the word, preaching the word, intercession first, then the prophesying, the preaching of the word, then then the move of God um, uses that. So uh, I really want to preach through finishing Second Peter chapter three. We've we've looked at we've been in this series. If you're new with us today looking at the book of 2 Peter. And chapter 3 is the last chapter of the second letter, the last letter that he writes to the early church. And Peter is most likely writing this from a Roman prison cell at the end of his life, approximately 30 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead. He's done ministry for approximately 30 years. He's maybe in his 60s, our best guess, and he's about to be executed by Nero, and they're going to crucify him. And he says, no, I'm not worthy to be killed like Jesus. So crucify me upside down. And they're all too happy to grant that request. So they do that. And so, and so here's Peter writing a letter that we've talked about the last few weeks to the church. This is going to be shared to all the churches in the known world at that time. And so we're coming into the last chapter, the last few words he's going to write, and his focus is set on eternity. Because when you're staring down eternity, eternity is really all that matters. And so I want to give you a heads up of what we're going to unpack today in chapter 3. Three points that Peter wants to make with his closing words to the church. The last words he's going to speak or write on the earth And the first thing he's going to address is Jesus is coming back. The second coming of Christ. Look at your neighbor and tell him Jesus is coming back. The second thing he's going to address is you and I are going to be judged. Look at your other neighbor and tell him you will be judged. I hear some nervous laughter. You feel how uncomfortable that was? Like, oh, you'll be judged. (laughs) I pray the Lord gives you just a little compassion and empathy for me now. Think about how uncomfortable that was to tell one person to their face, you'll be judged. Now imagine getting to tell hundreds of people every week, you'll be judged. (laughs) So pray for me. All right, third point. Third point. How then should we live? He asks a question at the end. How then should we live? Jesus is coming back. You and I will be judged. How then should we live our lives? That's what we're talking about today. Second Peter chapter 3, he says this. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, that's an interesting statement. He's saying above all, above anything else I've said, this is what I want you to think about in closing. The last words I'm going to speak as I'm staring down eternity must be really important. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this quote unquote coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter's talking about one of the major essential doctrines of the Christian faith, the second coming of Christ, meaning the return of Jesus Christ. So his first coming, we call it the second coming because his first coming was what, is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. God became flesh. Jesus is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. God putting on human flesh. We call him the son of God because he's the only begotten son of God. He's the only person who's ever lived. You and I are called sons and daughters, lowercase s and d in scripture. He's the only begotten, meaning of the same divine essence. It was a virgin conception. That's an important doctrine in the Christian faith. Why? Because Jesus didn't have a natural father. Think about this. Even in his flesh, XY chromosomes. Where did he get half his chromosomes? From the Holy Spirit, divine essence of God. So he was fully God, but fully man. The divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Again, essential doctrine of the Christian faith. He came, first of all, how did he come? As a baby. As my ancestors in Scotland might have said, as a wee lad. Wee, just little, tiny, humble, quiet, meek, baby, a suffering servant. Just came to serve and then showed us the full extent of his love by dying on the cross. That's how he came the first time. He said in John 3, hey, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. That's how he came the first time. But the second time, the second coming, it's going to be entirely different. He's not going to come meekly, quietly, humbly as a servant to save the world. Revelation tells us what the second coming will look, sound, and, and feel like. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. The name is written, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords, the Apostle Paul says when he comes back, John is having a vision. That's what he's going to look like. Paul tells us what it's going to sound like. The last trumpet will sound and the shout 
of the archangel. You ever see the movie Braveheart when they're riding into battle? Ah! Now imagine Michael the archangel giving a shout of glory with the last trump sounding and Jesus doesn't come quietly, meekly as a baby to serve and save. No, he comes riding on a horse, eyes blazing like fire, sword coming out of his mouth, crowns on his head, robe dipped in blood, name tattooed on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, and this time he will come to judge the nations and give eternal reward judgment to those who've surrendered their lives to him, who've bowed the knee, confessed with the tongue in this life, he is king of kings and lord of lords, he's my lord, Lord Jesus, my master, my king. And they'll be eternally rewarded. And to anyone who rejects that right there, what do you do with Jesus? The only question that matters in your life until you settle that question in your life. And to anyone who rejects him for any reason, they will not be eternally rewarded. They'll be eternally condemned, thrown into the lake of fire, which God prepared originally for the devil and his angels. And so foundational doctrine of Christianity, the second coming of Jesus Christ. He will come back. This is not metaphor. This is literal. Just like the birth of Christ was literal. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It happened. He came, he changed the world. We define our calendar and time by his literal existence. And so he will end the calendar of time as we know it when he comes back. It will happen. Look at your neighbor and tell him it will happen. But Peter says, above all, you got to understand, guys, that scoffers are going to come. Why does he say, above all, you need to understand scoffers will come? Within 30 years of Christ ascending, it's only been about 30 years, and there were already scoffers. Oh, you said he's coming? Where It's been three decades, man. Oh, yeah, he's coming back? Oh, okay. Well, now it's been 2,000 years. How much more are there going to be scoffers in our day and age? And And... If you listen too much to the critics, the atheists, the skeptics, the doubters, the scoffers, there's a peer pressure there in our culture. There's a peer pressure. And behind that peer pressure is actually demonic spirits. It's a spirit of doubt. It's a spirit of skepticism. It's a spirit of unbelief. And if you listen to, oh, yeah, why hasn't he come back yet? And, oh, man, what do we do with this? And, oh, I don't know what to think. And, oh, my goodness, and I don't know. And, oh, and I don't want to, because I don't, I'm not confident, and I don't know what I think, and I don't know what the Bible says, then I don't know how to talk to my friends who are so strongly, vehemently hating me for professing Christ. And so maybe I'll just shut up, or maybe I'll just quit going to church, or maybe I'll just agree with them that it's really not true. Probably, I don't know. You got to understand, scoffers are going to come. And it's no wonder that in the last days, scoffers will come and mock this idea 
this is really disturbing to me. This um, grieves my heart as a pastor. I feel, I feel overwhelmed sometimes. I feel, um, I feel like um, I'm a very discerning person. I, I, I'm pretty good at telling when something's me and my flesh versus spiritual attack versus feeling the heart of God. And I'm telling you, sometimes because of what I'm about to tell you, I feel like Jeremiah. I'm like a weeping prophet over this nation, over this people, over this modern age we live in. And uh, my one of my spiritual directors, which is a fancy term for like counselor friend who's about 30 years older than me, who helps me in the faith. Um, he said, Aaron, you're getting really close to a mutual mind with God, meaning you're, you're, you're really starting to think like God. And, you know, Jesus was a man of sorrows, but always rejoicing. He was always rejoicing what God was doing, and yet he said things from time to time. Oh, you wicked and perverse generation, how long shall I put up with you? Man, I love Jesus, because I feel that way sometimes. The more you're in his presence, the more holy you know he is, the more unholy you feel, but then the more you live into it, the more holy you become, and then you look at the world and you feel like, oh my goodness, how long do I have to stay here? When can I go to heaven? Yeah, I feel that. I feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle sometimes. Why? Because right now in America, a record low number of Americans believe the Bible is the literal inspired word of God at 24%. I praise God for that 24%. Because among Western European nations, that's probably extremely high actually. 54% of Christians believe the Bible should not be taken literally or is a book written by men, but not the inspired word of God. It gets worse, 52% of, mind you, I'm saying of Christians. 52% of Christians believe that even though we all sin a little, most people are basically inherently good. Um, about 60% of Christians, 60%, believe Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. This is in America. I would I would venture a guess that in South America, Africa, that is not the case among the Christian people. About 58% of Christians, about the same number, believe the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but a symbol of God's power and presence. Just a symbol. Maybe that's why we have a form of godliness, but deny the power and quench the Spirit and wonder why we're just as depressed, lonely, anxious, and suicidal as the culture. Here's the kicker. 52% of Christian people in America believe the, that people who don't believe in God can still go to heaven. Because, you know, we all sin a little, but like, we all know like Hitler and Judas Iscariot are going to hell. But other than that, if you're a pretty good person, you get to go to heaven. Guys, hmm. This should humble us as believers. Before we post complaining about our government or our immoral culture online, I think we should examine our own hearts to go, do I really believe scripture is true? And do I live like it? Because we have no business criticizing a culture that's confused if the church of Jesus Christ is confused. We have no business judging a culture if we ourselves are losing our saltiness. We have no business 
calling the culture dark if the light is looking as dark as the dark? How can we help them? How can we bring change if we're compromising our own beliefs and agreeing with the world? And let me tell you, there is a religion in America. It's freedom of religion, but what's the prevailing religion in America? Mass, on a mass level, what's prevailing? Um, there's a God. We'll even throw Jesus in there. Yeah, do we like Jesus? All the celebrities, everybody, famous people, yeah, we like Jesus. He loves everyone. He's kind and nice. But hey, you can live however you want. Live your truth. God's forgiving. He'll forgive you. And just, you'll go to heaven. And oh, by the way, every other faith is valid too. So if you're into Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or New Age, that's fine too. Just live your truth. It's really all the same thing. We're all really talking about the great universal spirit, the universe. That's the religion of America. And when you start to live by what Scripture actually teaches and what Jesus himself actually said, whoa, you're a bigot, you're racist, you're, you're all these things. Guys, it's getting to the point in our day and age that it's a hate crime to call certain types of sexual sin immoral, according to Scripture. Not that I'm being hateful, but if something doesn't change in this country, there's, there's a day coming when a pastor like me could get up on a Sunday in a church and say, hey, this is God's design for sexuality. And hey, you know, you know, it's, it's monogamous and heterosexual. And that's what marriage is. And so, you know, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to repent of sexual sin. And, and so for our LGBT brothers and sisters, you, you need to repent of those things and, and come into faith. And there's a day coming, if something doesn't change, where I could be put in prison for a hate crime, for calling a certain type of sexual sin, sin. And not in, a help, not in, a, not in an unloving way. Just being honest. And by the way, if, if you've ever, if you're LGBT and you think I'm being judgmental, uh, you need to hear my testimony, which I don't have time to go into, but um, I was a sexual sinner at one time, and I had my own sexual sin to repent of. And in God's eyes, it's all the same. And I still have to live free of that. And when those temptations come, I have to stand my guard and not give in to those things to follow Christ. And so... The Bible's clear. We all have to repent to trust in Christ and follow him. I'm just telling you, Christian people, we need to wake up and we need to live. And listen, I don't say that stuff to be political, to get you to vote for somebody so we can change America because I'm a white nationalist Christian, as I will be accused of being for simply preaching the scriptures. I say those things, particularly for LGBT people, particularly for people who struggle in other types of sin, because there is a law higher than the law of this land that's written on our hearts. It's the law of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when you stand before a holy God, that is how you will be judged, not according to what scripture or not according to what culture says or what your friends thought what Jesus thinks. And my job as a pastor, forget, forget about America, forget about politics, forget about this country. I'm talking about people. 
what's written on your heart. You have a conscience. And scripture tells us what's wrong and what's right. And we're called to live by it. And we will be judged by according to what we did with it. It's so heavy on my heart. And so, man, (laughs) I mean, think about that. A majority of Christians in our day and age believe that, what was it, 52% people who don't believe in God can't, can go to heaven. Majority of Christians in America. Now think about what that means. Majority of Christians in America, 52% now, believe, well, you, you, you don't really need Jesus dying on the cross. You don't really need him rising from the dead to go to heaven. You just kind of believe in God in general and be a nice person. Or actually, you don't have to believe in God. Wow. Well, no wonder people will scoff at the idea of a second coming in judgment if now we're getting to the point where people think you don't even need Jesus on the cross. The people who claim to be Christians, his people. Oh, my goodness. Far be it from us, Lord. And so, man... I wrote this in my notes. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And this last couple years has been a shaking where the Lord, the devil's using the last few years to do his work. But what the Lord is doing is waking people up and going, choose. Whom will you serve? What will you believe? And as I said last week, will you view the world through the word? Or are you going to view the word through the world? And twist it and make it fit your life so you don't have to change or repent. It's really important. And so Peter goes on about these scoffers. Be aware of this. Why? Verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. He's talking about creation. Genesis 1. They deliberately forget Genesis 1. Verse 6, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's talking about Genesis 6, the flood of Noah. By the same word that caused everything to be created, the same word that sent the flood, the word of God, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I want to highlight that last part. We'll talk about it at the end. God doesn't want anyone to perish, meaning second death, hell perish but everyone to come to repentance, faith in Christ, so everyone can be saved. God's desire is that every single person on the planet is saved. But there's only one way and one name by which we're saved. It's the name of Jesus. God's not slow. The scoffers are going, oh yeah, oh, it's been 2,000 years, Christian people. He says, with the Lord, a thousand years are like a day. So from God's perspective, how long has it been since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to his heavenly throne where he waits to come back? It's been two days. That ain't long. It's long to us, 2,000 years. Not long to him. It's only been two days. Mm. whole lot I want to go into there. The Lord's like, you don't have time, so I'm not going to go into that. 
Verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Yeah, this is important. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. There he says it again. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He will come like a thief. What does he mean by that? Suddenly, a thief, someone who's going to rob your house, doesn't call you or text you beforehand and say, hey, just, you know, at like around 2.33 this morning, I'm going to come rob you. No, it's sudden. It's unexpected. That's how Jesus is going to come. Where did he get that idea? Jesus said, I will come like a thief. Jesus said that. It will be sudden. Peter references the flood of Noah. Where did he get that reference? Jesus gave that reference in Matthew 24. He said, this is how it will be when he comes Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the, second, at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, This is Jesus to first century people while he's still on the earth. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know what time, you don't know what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour You don't expect him. Oh, so much I want to say on this. He's coming suddenly. It'll be like a thief. We don't know the day or the hour, so we shouldn't predict the day or the hour, right? So when someone says he's coming on this day, you can go, not true, (laughs) unless they made a lucky guess. But they, they, they don't know. They don't know. We don't know the day or the hour, but it's important to know we do know the season. We will know the season, I should say. Because Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see all of these signs, and he gives a whole chapter full of a list of signs, not just one or two here or there. When you see all of them happening, then you'll know it's very near. And he says, look at the fig tree. When the twigs get tender and the leaves start coming out, oh, you know it's very near, right at the door. It's not very near like, God, God's told me a few times, you know, I'm about to do this in your life. And I've literally been like, Lord, what's about to mean? Because with you, a thousand years is a day. So are we talking like 50 years from now? And that's like about to you? That's like five seconds to you? Like, what do you mean by about to, right? But when Jesus says, I'm very near right at the door, oh, that's, that's, a, that's like, he's about to knock. He's about to come back. He's saying, look at the fig tree. When you see all the signs, you'll know it's near. Paul said, he's coming like a thief in the night to people who don't keep watch, who are not ready. They will be utterly shocked and surprised by the second coming. Scripture says it'll be a great and terrible day of the Lord. Every eye on earth will see him and the nations will mourn because of it. Why will they mourn? It's talking about the multitudes of people who don't know him. Because when they see him, dread will fill him and they will know it is too late and I'm about to be judged and it's not going to go well for me. 
and it will be sudden, like the flood of Noah. People had no clue. Giving in marriage, being married, buying, selling, going on. Life's just going on. Hustle, bustle, whatever. Boom, it starts to rain. That's how it's going to be when, when Jesus comes back. The world that's asleep will have no idea. But Paul says it will not come on us like a thief because we're watching. We're awake. Jesus told us in advance what to look for. He gave us a whole list of signs in Matthew 24. And by the way, I did a deep dive study of all that. End times, Revelation, Daniel, Matthew 24 in 2020. Read a whole commentary on the book of Revelation. Super deep dive for me. And um, I studied all those signs in history. Jesus said they're the birth pains. He compared them to birth pains. When a woman has a child... Um, when she goes into labor, oh, it's time, right? But it takes a while. Some of you ladies know, oh, it can take a long time. It can take a whole day or two to get that baby out. And that day or two feels like forever when you're in pain, right? But however long it is, the contractions, the pain, the labor pains, they start less intense than they will be at the end. They start really far apart. As it goes on, as the labor goes on, excuse me, The pains get more intense, painful, and they get closer in frequency. They get a lot more often. That's Jesus going, when you see all these signs and you see them picking up in intensity, the pain that they're causing, because by the way, they're all all negative signs, and in frequency, it's getting really close together. Frequency and intensity, you'll know it's, oh, it's right there. When you study the signs Jesus gives in Matthew 24, I don't have time to go into all of them. Starting in the 1900s, the 20th century, all of them start happening a lot more frequently and a lot, with a lot more intensity. Just one example, wars. There's always been wars. World War I, World War II, not, not a few hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands. Millions, tens of millions of people slaughtered on all over the earth on a massive scale. Two times within a few decades of each other. That's just one example. But I'm telling you, starting in the 1900s, natural disasters, Google the frequency of natural disasters across the earth starting around 1980. I'm just saying, all the signs are picking up. The gospel will be preached in all nations. It has been, if you count nations as the 235 or whatever nations on the earth. If you go by languages, it hasn't yet. But what's interesting is there are Bible translator people who are saying, by the year 2033, we can have the the Bible in all the languages on earth, all 3,000 some languages. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's great. But that means it's very near right at the door. We better be awake. There's a, the mystic Jews had a theory that as God created seven days and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord, the mystic Jews of Jesus' time believed that the timeline of this earth would be 7,000 years, seven days of creation, seven millennia, days to God. It's interesting that Jesus was crucified on the cross around the year 4,000, going from the timeline of Adam's when Adam was on the earth by the genealogies in Scripture. 
the year 20, 32, 33, give a year or two, will be approximately the end of the 6,000th years. Hmm. Revelation says he'll come back, but then he'll reign on earth for a millennia. The seventh day was God's day of rest. I'm presenting a theory to you. I'm not predicting a day, but can we know the season? Jesus said we will know the season when all the signs are happening. And if over the next 10 years, you see the Bible being translated into all languages and all people groups getting to hear the gospel, ooh, that's a big one. All nations on earth will hate you. All 230-some nations will begin to hate Christians, perhaps because we stand on biblical truth in the areas of marriage and sexuality and, and other things that the whole world now is starting to agree on. We better be awake. We better be ready, not for the sake of politics, for the sake of our own souls. Scripture says, I'm preaching biblical Christianity right now for your own soul's sake. You need to pay attention. You need to examine yourself. You need to be awake. You need to be ready. Sobering, isn't it? Sobering. Isn't it interesting? Be sober-minded and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. That's serious stuff. Yeah, eternity is serious business. And once you get it settled with Jesus, then you can be always rejoicing and rejoice to share your faith and rejoice to suffer with others, to help them, to bless them. Count it all as joy. But if you haven't made peace with Jesus yet, then it is very sobering indeed. And you shouldn't try to get out of that discomfort because you could run to false comforts of this world to feel better and keep running from Jesus until the day you can't run anymore. And then it'll be too late. And so, verse 11, as Peter is winding down, so shall I. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, since Jesus will come back and judge you. He says, since everything will be destroyed. That was super convicting to me this week. I'm a believer. I love Jesus. I want to live to love people do my father's business, to be ready. But this is how this convicted me this week. How much time do I put in things in my life? How much do I invest in things that will burn? How much time? How much money? How much? Mm. And in eternity, in this life, oh, there's some benefit. That's cool. It's good. But in eternity, it's not even going to How much time do we waste on worry and fear in your past? And in eternity, it doesn't matter. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? In other words, how then shall we live, brothers and sisters, in light of this fact? In light of the fact that we could be the last generation on this earth, 
Oh, that's very possible. I don't discount it. How should we live? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. How should we live? And I love that Peter answers this question because not everybody had a copy of the scriptures back then. Be like, well, let, I'm going to do a Bible study this week on how I should be living to be ready for Christ's return. They couldn't do that, a lot of them. And so he's like, I'll just tell you, how should you live? All right, I'll tell you the answer. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Holy means set apart from the things of the world. Not just like, well, it's not wrong to sit and binge Netflix five hours a night and just live for myself. That's not morally wrong, right? But is it holy? Is it set apart to the things of God? Are there good things of this world that are robbing you from being about the Father's business, being about eternal things, helping other people come to know Jesus to depopulate hell and populate heaven? You ought to live holy, set apart godly lives. Godly is the righteousness, the moral part of it. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire. Third time he said it in the chapter. Can't reiterate enough. Everything's going to burn. That's a good thing. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Finally, Peter gets to the good news. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what we generically just call heaven. When we don't want to wrestle with the theological complexity that the scriptures actually present. And that's okay. We'll just want to get to heaven, right? That's okay. But it'll be a new heavens and a new earth. It'll be awesome. Where righteousness dwells though. And that's important. That's the gospel. God wants to save you from sin, death, this earth, this age, yourself, and get you to heaven, the new heavens and new earth, where righteousness dwells, where there will be no night because God himself is the light, right? We will be in his presence. There will be no temple because God himself is the temple. We're just in the presence of God 24-7, 365. There is no 24-7, 360. It's just we're just in the presence of God into eternity. It'll be magnificent and amazing in billions and trillions of ways that I could never express in this life, right? Where righteousness dwells, which means sin is not allowed there. And so if people who don't believe in God or people who don't have their sins forgiven or covered or repented of are allowed in to the new thing, well, then the new thing will become just like the old thing, broken, evil, sinful. And God's like, I'm not doing that again. No, I'm redeeming this one. I'm buying my people back out of it. But the new one, it's going to be pure and righteous and holy. So how do you become that? You repent of your sin, saying, turn, change your mind, turn, change your ways. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to live for Jesus. He's my Lord. Doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly, but when you know that you mess up, keep your servant also from willful sins, the Psalms say. Willful meaning I knew I did it and I did it on purpose. Keep me from that because we all sin in all little ways that we don't even know because it's broken, sinful, fallen world, right? The grace of God empowers you through Jesus to overcome the willful sin in your life. Keep your heart pure before him. That's what he wants, walking in the faith. What about the other imperfections? That's where the blood of Jesus, he covers all your sin. And so your sin has to be repented of, trusting in Christ as Lord. You're forgiven. You are made new. You get a robe of righteousness. 
dipped in blood, the blood of Jesus, and that covers you, just like the Passover lamb. They story, they painted the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorpost, and the angel of death came and passed over them. And so the only way you get into heaven is putting on the blood of Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're my Lord. I want your blood applied to my life. And you're not any less sinful than anyone who's ever lived. But you've received what Jesus has done for you. And because you're repentant, his Holy Spirit comes in and he empowers you to live a different way and to live it like you mean it. And to live that way until he returns or you go to be with him, whichever comes first. That's the gospel. And so I just want to close with this question. Are you personally prepared for Christ's coming? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you living like you're ready? Is your family ready? Are your kids ready? Are your kids ready? Are you talking to them about the things of God on a daily basis? Or are you letting the world indoctrinate them because you stay silent and the TV shows and the music and their friends and all the things are teaching them the mindset of American culture? Oh, you're fine. Yeah, God loves you. Just live however you want. Everybody gets to go to heaven. It's not scripture. It's not truth. Are your kids ready? Peter says, live godly lives. And listen to what he says in verse 14. Since you are looking forward to this, he, he reiterates what he said in chapter 1. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Are you at peace with Jesus? Do you have any unconfessed sin in your life? Are there any ways you've compromised his word in your life? Any ways you've been living that you know are not of God? Have you been complacent about your father's business? Are you daily seeking first the kingdom? Are you being distracted and lulled to sleep by the things of the world and pleasures of life? Or are you staying sober-minded, praying for friends and family who don't know him yet, staying busy about the father's business God's calling in your life? That's what it's about living every single day for him, wholly set apart every day as a living sacrifice. That's how you stay sober-minded. That's how you stay ready, because you don't know. He could come back today. He could come back a thousand years from now. You could die today. I could die today. Are you ready? I would just say it this way. Don't ever let yourself slip into living in, into living in a way where you're not ready. Because you don't know when your breath will be your last and you don't know when he's coming back. So just stay humble. Stay in scripture, stay in him, stay in the church. And stay busy about your father's business. So that you can be sober minded. So you can be ready. Amen. I just want to pray as we close. God. Just open up our hearts to be ready. I pray that you would sober us today and um, help us to live in that sobriety um, and yet show us the joy 
of living in your presence. Your word says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And um, we can be rejoicing always, as your word says, to do, even though we're sorrowful at the things in the world and the things that grieve your heart. And show us how to be like Jesus of a mutual mind, as my friend says, who is sorrowful but always rejoicing. Um, I pray that we would never not be sorrowful about the things that grieve your heart, that we can stay soft-hearted and grieve the things that grieve you. But I also pray, Lord, that we would rejoice, and I'll say it again, rejoice and rejoice and rejoice in what you're doing. And so I rejoice in what you're doing in this place in people's hearts right now. And Holy Spirit, I just ask you to come and convict those who need you, Jesus, who need to repent, trust you for salvation. And uh, that you would motivate them to do that, to take those necessary steps and to give their life to you. And uh, just pray for those who need to recommit their lives, who need to come to you again, get serious and set themselves apart. That we would be a church set apart, a people set apart for you, for your glory, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. And everybody said, amen.